Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? Number WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksters? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? On the show, Roseanne Cash. Legend. Amazing conversation. Uh, I I was thrilled. Uh, boy, what a life! Where did I, where did I start adding boy to things? Boy, boy, what a life! That's like a like a Letterman thing. Uh, no, I was I was thrilled and honored to talk to her, and we did cover a lot of stuff. So that's coming up. Uh, what about me? What about me? What about Mark? What about the Mark problem? Well, look, folks, uh, what is happening? The last time I talked to you, I was in a car driving from. Bloomington to Indianapolis in a panic because I'd been booked on a flight out of Indianapolis that got me to Chicago with less than 40 minutes to change planes in Chicago airport. Chicago airport being one of the, I think you would call a classic clusterfuck airports could take a, it could, it's some, you could end up running a mile to get to a goddamn flight. And I don't trust regional airports. I mean, I trust them, but they just don't, you're not, things don't run well. If one guy doesn't show up to work, the whole thing's going to go down. Everything's going to be fucked. So I get to Indianapolis airport an hour and a half early. And I upload the intro that I just recorded that you heard on Monday. And I pay five bucks to get some uh, premium uh, internet speed. And I get that off to New York. So that's in the can. I'm feeling a little peace of mind, a little quiet in my heart that I don't have to worry about that anymore. But I'm still thinking maybe I can get home to do another one just in case that one doesn't sound good. I don't know. That was that's what that's what my thinking was. So I go to the gate where I'm supposed to be boarding because it looks like they're boarding my 145 flight to Chicago. But no, they're not. That apparently was a plane that they had to deplane that's going to JFK. Imagine me slowly, slowly starting to to boil. I'm starting to boil because I'm like, this is one of those days I had a bad feeling and some days you go to the airport and for no reason at all, you just get fucked. If you travel a lot, you realize that. Hey man, I've had a good run. I got one of those days coming. I'm owed one of those days where who knows what's happening, but it's fucked. And I look out the window and there's some guy that's driving a truck towards a plane to do something. He gets out of the truck and waddles 
to do his job. That that's always the weird thing. Is a it's a heavy set guy. It was Sunday. He did not give a fuck that anything moved quickly. I don't even know what he's doing. He was plugging a hose into a hole in the ground. But there was something about the pace that he was at which made me realize this is the way this is going to go all day. Whatever that guy has going on inside, that's about where we're all at. That was my that was my metaphor. Just going to take his time and bungle through it. So then I realized that my plane that I'm supposed to be on is parked out, out in the distance. And I say to the guy, can you put me on this plane? Because I, I might might be able to connect. And he goes, I, I'm not taking any of you guys from that plane. I, I'm all alone over here and I'm busy. We're trying to get this plane off the ground. And I'm like, fine. So then I, I, I just start to realize that this JFK flight's not leaving either. I'm not going to get out. If they park the plane I'm supposed to be on, maybe I'll get out by 2.30 and there's no fucking way I can make my connection. Then I just have to surrender to the whims of, of picking up another flight in Chicago. I was okay with it because I had my driving intro in the can. But then I realized, like, wait a minute, I can execute my will. And I can go back over to that gate and just, you know, kind of strut a bit and go like, look, man, because some other guy did it. Some other guy made a stink, said, you know, I I booked first class on my next flight. Is this how I'm going to be treated? And I overheard him talking to another guy from American. I'm like, yeah, yeah, is that how he's going to be treated? And I just sort of followed him over there to the gate. So I just get online with these three guys and I get a ticket and I get on that 1145. So I'm trying to realize that like everything's going to be okay. Eventually I'll get to LA, but I want to get to LA, man. I've been to Lawrence. I've been to St. Louis. I've been to Bloomington. I've been around. I'm ready to go home. So now we land a little early in Chicago, right? We get there and it looks like I might have time to make this thing. We get, we land at 140. So now we're sitting on the runway waiting for a parking space. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding. Who the fuck is in charge of this goddamn airport? Who's in charge of this airline? Can't they run things with any sort of semblance of, of a schedule? Do we just assume that everything's going to be fucked up? I might have a shot at making my plane, but you know, I had to, to gate check my bag. So I knew I was gonna have to wait in the goddamn gateway you know online for my bag so i gotta factor that in and i know i'm gonna be sprinting through o'hare sprinting like an idiot sweating and breathing heavily with my duffel bag to get to where i'm going god damn it so we finally park and now it's 150 and i get off and i wait and there's three wheelchairs i don't like to be in the position to to resent wheelchairs i even resent them but i'm like all right man this is just it's that day dude these people, you know, they, you know, they're, they need wheelchairs and you've got to wait till that all happens and then wait for your bag. It's okay. You cannot in a just world, if you're a moral person, get aggravated that there are three wheelchairs that are in front of you that you have to wait for. So I didn't do that. Instead, I got aggravated at everything else surrounding that. <sighs> God, I'm getting worked up just talking about it. It's like five after two. I know they're already boarding, so I grab the bag and I start the run. I'm, you know, I'm dodging people. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hustling. You know, I'm getting mad at people in my way. People sense the urgency. People are stepping aside. People are giving me a free runway to get to my flight. And I run right up to that gate and I get online. They're still boarding. I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to fucking make it. This is amazing, but I'm full of hate for the situation. Did not want to have this happen. I wait a few people. Then I show the guy my ticket and he looks at me and goes, you got to see the agent about your ticket. And I'm like, what? And also, you got to put that duffel bag into the into the size gauging frame. 
And I'm like, it'll fit, dude. He goes, you're not getting on the plane unless you put it in. Didn't like his attitude. See, I play a trick. I have a duffel bag that's pretty soft, so I pack it up pretty good. And it's, it is actually too big to bring on the plane, but it'll squish into the size it needs. So now I'm livid. I'm sweaty. I'm angry. Even though things are going my way, I still held on to the anger because that seems to be what I like to do. And I'm trying to fix that. So I go, what? And he says, yeah, you got to put it, put your bag in that thing. And I'm like, it'll fit. He goes, put it in or you're not getting on the plane. So I'm right there in front of everybody waiting to get on this plane. And I smash my duffel bag into that frame angrily. And it fit. And I looked at him and I go, does that fit okay? He goes, yeah, that's fine. And then I go to pull my bag out of that frame. And the whole frame comes up with it, makes a big noise. And now I'm pulling it up and down. And the frame is bouncing up and down. It's a full-on tantrum scene being thrown by a man child who is me and i'm just sort of like there's no grace in any of it here i thought i was like vindicated self-righteously angry for a reason and now i'm wrestling with the goddamn frame that's got a sign on it and it's a disaster and then some other guy who works at the gate steps over to hold the frame down while i pull my bag out and i rip it out and i go fuck this and he looked at me the other guy and he goes don't handle things with anger what wow so for me that means almost everything food masturbation situations with other people don't handle things with anger and in in that heat of that moment i don't think i could take in the profundity of it don't handle things with anger and i i already felt embarrassed and i go over to the ticket counter to deal with whatever bullshit that was and you know what they'd upgraded me And I walk back over to the dude who made me get out of line to go deal with my ticket and smash my bag into the frame. And I go, here. And he goes, did you go to see the agent? I'm like, yeah, I did. It's first class. Still a dick. Still a dick. Then walk onto the plane with my head down and I take my seat in first class and look down the entire time the plane, people on the plane loaded up because of that embarrassing fucking shit fit. I just sat there thinking, like, I got to get out there and apologize to that guy. But I can't get off the plane now. So I got up in the air and I tweeted to American Airlines uh, that, to apologize to that guy. And I gave the flight number in the day. And they said they would, they would take care of it. They would accept it on his behalf. And I thanked them for upgrading me to first class. And I made it home. Ashamed of myself, but happy to be in first class. I was a man-child. I had had a shit fit. I had thrown a tantrum. And I got a cookie. Still, I got first class and a cookie, even though I was a baby. God damn it, man. I got to stop it, man. I got to stop it. Just crazy. Just stupid. Don't handle things with anger. Wow. That's a country song. Let's talk to uh, my guest, Roseanne Cash, now. Can we do that together? Let's do that. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed 
relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Together. I look at uh, the work of musicians and I'm like, oh my God, how are you going to cover all that? And you yeah, just don't. I won't. Don't. Well, we got to talk a little. Yeah. But you just talked to Tavis Smiley and now like he's an interview guy. What did he open with? <laughs> What he what did he come up with oh, right out of the gate? What did he come up with out of the gate? I how'd, can't remember now. How'd he break the ice? Well, it was mostly about the record, you know. So so it was all focused on the new record. Pretty much, yeah. You're and do you know what number record this is? I'm holding it for everyone at home I, who can't see me. I don't know that I count compilations or best of. No, things. you can't. No, I so, won't count those. Yeah, I don't count those either. Yeah. So then it. I, then I don't know. I have to. I would have to count them up. Uh huh. Like fifteen, maybe. Yes. Do you want me to look? Something like that. Yes. <laughs> and I noticed on this record that you you wrote a song with your ex husband. Yeah. So you guys that you get along with your ex husband. Yeah. Well, and, I wrote it with my ex and my current husband. The three of us. How does that? How does that work? We're so evolved. We well, just <laughs> but evolved. Yeah. I mean, but there must be. It must be more than just evolved because your current husband. Is is a musician and music producer. Yeah, and your ex husband is a musician and music producer and songwriter. Both of them. Okay, so there's got to be some respect there. Yeah, exactly. That's how we were able to do it. We really respect each other. Right. And that in that uh, and there was no contention. There's no con- like weirdness. Oh, Not at all. In with fact, the boys, no, the boys get along well. <laughs> they get along very well. Yeah. They, in fact, they had written the song first. Yeah. And I overheard it. And I asked if I could have it. And uh-huh. They said no. It's for Emmy Lou. Oh my God! Yeah. So you, this we who this was your first your your which husband said wrote it? Both of them. They, John had written the melody. Rodney had written these lyrics. So I waited a year. Emmy Lou didn't record it. And I said to Rodney, "Would you rewrite the lyrics with me of this Civil yeah. War ballad? It was it was in the tradition of Appalachian or Celtic ballad." So we wrote the lyrics together. He came over. We sat at the kitchen table. Then we finished it by email, put it to John's melody. I mean, there's so, there's a nice metaphor in there somewhere. I can't quite sort out what it is, what, With the Civil War backdrop, you Well, mean? The, the, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think well, there's a, it's a very complicated metaphor yeah. that, you know, the two sides have come together. Uh, right. You know, uh, and and uh, and I think the only one that loses is Emmy Lou. If I if I'm doing the math. <laughs> so are you friends with Emmy Lou? Of course. If you guys all are friends. I look at uh, even the credits on this record. It's like Chris Christopherson's hanging out, and you got uh, the Trucks Kid playing slide guitar. The Trucks Kid, I like that. <laughs> Derek. Derek. He's Trucks. a wizard, man. He's wicked. Unbelievable! He's like one of those pro- pro- what do you call him a prodigy? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's amazing. Well, yeah, we all know each other. It's like you do this for thirty something years. You run into people at festivals. You end up doing shows together. You end up being on each other's record. It's a small community, really. Uh, yeah, I guess of the people that are are on top in a way. 
<laughs> There's plenty of people running around Nashville with CDs trying to drive. I, I, the years ago when I was in Nashville, some guy, a cab driver, gave me gave his you tape. his tape. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But like Chris Christopherson, you must know him since you like were a kid. Yeah. I is do. it is it bizarre? He's like an older brother or an uncle. Uh-huh. And I love him so much, and he, he's like one of the last connections I have to that world. That world. Yeah. Is is he one of the last ones left? He is. It's true, right? Yeah. Like Waylon's not alive, right? Waylon's gone. Willie's around. That's true. Willie's around. <laughs> Willie is like the, he's, you know, he's everybody. like the nuclear cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> but like when you see Chris, I mean, because he was so specific, and it's weird with him. Like he was so, uh, you know, he, he seemed different than the rest of them in, in terms of of his sensitivity and the way he wrote songs. He's so. Deeply sensitive, so yeah. self-deprecating. Really, so much so. He's—I I mean, I've done shows with Chris, and he—it's kind of well known that he will go out on stage. He will find the guy in the first four rows uh-huh. who's like got his arms crossed and glaring at him, or falling asleep, and that's the person he'll sing to. Really, just to torture himself. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's a, that's like a comic, like the one guy, yeah. the one guy that's looking at you like you suck. You're like you're my guy. You're my guy. You're you're, you're clearly right. <laughs> Every, <laughs> but I'm gonna get exactly you. right. Well, Chris doesn't even go that far. Yeah, he's not even. I'm gonna get you. He's just going. Uh, okay, this is this, this is this it. what I deserve. This is what I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful. So okay, so now this new record. How like when you approach a record at this point? Because you're a person. I, you know, I noticed like certainly after. Um, after your marriage ended and you're very candid emotionally in your music. So where are you at now with this record? I mean, what did you achieve? What, what kind of closure? What kind of, what were you trying to, uh, to sort of like um, get all in? Candidness can be a performance too, you know? Yes, absolutely. So, oh, so you're going to tell me that, that I, 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 that I'm believing an illusion. No, you're not. Okay. You're not, but, um, that thing of people thinking they know you because of your songs and they must all just be pages from a diary, that's not really true. I know. I learned that lesson with Oddly with uh, Niccolo. Yeah. Because like, he, cause he played The Beast in Me, which is one of my favorite songs, which Love he wrote yeah, for song. your dad. Yeah. And But here I'm like, I'm thinking like, well, Nick must have lived this life. So I'm looking at this guy like, you know, this, this guy's been through some shit. But he's like, no, I just, I'm a songwriter. That's right. Yeah. You're not just ripping pages from your journal. You're a songwriter. There's craft to it. That's what annoys me sometimes when people, well, we don't have to go off into that. No, we have what plenty of time. Question, you though? go off into it. What annoys you? Well, that that thing of pe- of people trying to force intimacies on you because they think they know you from the songs. Right. And there's craft and 30 years of showing up for work right. in the songs. Right, yeah. And they're sometimes completely not about me. Like you just said, Nick said, no, I'm a songwriter. I, <laughs> yeah. I made that up. Yeah. Right? I was disappointed, though. I was like, I, like I, th- I thought I knew you, man. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he <laughs> did really live it. He doesn't yeah. want you to know. Well, that's what you guys can do. Musicians <laughs> are able right. to do that. It's like, man, it's just a song, man. Yeah. Poetic license. But if you had people that have built relationships or with you, Around your music, like around the idea that you are representing yourself specifically. Well, I wouldn't allow that. No, right, but I mean fans, yeah. and you get weird letters. I mean, oh, what? What? How do yeah. you know you're annoyed? Is what I'm asking. Okay, annoyed is not the right word. It's it. 
it sparks a self-protective instinct uh-huh. in me uh-huh. when that hap- when I feel that happening. Right. Because I have a private life mm-hmm. that I cherish and I keep private. Mm-hmm. And it's not all out there on the songs or on the written page. Yeah. The written page. Is sure. that the right thing Well, to you say? wrote, you've written what, three, you've written a children's book, two, you know, uh, what, short fiction pieces yeah. and a memoir. A memoir. So the memoir, I, I think a lot of it's in there, No. Sure, the memoir is true. I mean, I felt a responsibility to be as factual, whatever that means, as I could recall. I mean, and I even called my aunt and my sisters. Do you remember this this way? But that doesn't mean I didn't reserve things for myself. Sure. But like in memoir writing, did you also ask your aunt and your sisters, I'm like, is it okay if I... Sure. And what's odd is that I asked my aunt if I could write about, you know, her parents' history, which was trouble they were alcoholics which aunt uh, my mother's sister Mm -hmm. and she said yes and she gave me all the stories and then when it came out she was still upset yeah, you can't win, man. You cannot win. Yeah, because you know they're they're like, oh, well, you love me, so you'll handle this properly. Yeah. And then when you tell the stories, they're like, why did you do that? <laughs> right. Well, I'm not like that. <laughs> right. And, and then it's a perception issue. It is a perception. Well, it, everything's a perception <laughs> issue. <laughs> what was the hardest thing that, that you struggle with uh, in terms of putting it in or not putting it in? The memoir. I didn't struggle with it, but I was really determined not to hurt people. Yeah. I, or to be bitter, you know, right. and say how I was wronged and who did it. I hate those kind of memoirs. Bitter is not good. Bitter is bad for your skin. It's just self-pity. It is. Yeah. I agree. And also it makes you look old. Bitterness is not good. <laughs> I think it, it, it hurts your health in all ways. Yeah. Yeah. So you, but there were not specific stories that you were like, had to really finesse I mean, what did you cover? You covered it all? My divorce, I had to finesse be- yeah. because it's divorce. You're gonna, clearly, you're going to write songs with the guy even right. now. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly, there's a reason you get divorced, yeah. and I just didn't want to go into that whole Michigas. So, do, do you find that, like, because I've been divorced twice, but I, have no, I don't have any kids, but when you start talking about divorce, even no matter where it's at, that same weird rage... Like you can tap right into it. I felt my stomach get tight when I said that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's weird because if someone starts talking to me, I'm like, "Oh, fuck her! Are you kidding me?" No, like, I don't feel like that. No, I, know. I truly don't. But there, yeah, there's a like a visceral memory of like why it happened. Sure. Why it happened, and then the whole process afterwards. Uh, what ten a, years. Ten years. Real. I felt like it took me eight years, maybe, to really get over it. That was hard. I don't know about you. No, it's. I'm not sure I'm completely over it yeah, now. Right. I mean, it, it, you're over it, but it's weird with heartbreak. It's like it. you realize over time that that stuff fades, but it doesn't leave. Yeah. See, this whole notion and pop psychology of closure, yeah. I don't believe in that at all. No. Stuff doesn't close. I mean, you, you, you can forgive sure. and release the active you know, grief of it. Sure. But but it's still it's you just compartmentalize it. Yeah. Well, and it's just something you carry with. It becomes part of you. Yeah. It's like part of your exactly. makeup now. Exactly. And and you just you can't let it uh, have too much space. Right. Oh, or good. energy. God, yeah. We okay. It out. We we've worked this out. <laughs> but you got it. The new guy's good, right? I love my husband. Yeah. We spend more time together than any couple I know. Uh huh. And uh. Sometimes we look at each other like, should we be doing this? We spend more time together than anybody. But we really like each other. And we play music together and we write together. And we have a child together. 
And um, that's amazing. It, it, is that his first good. child? Yeah, his only. But he did raise my youngest daughter, so. He, but you have, I mean, you have three other kids, and then you have this. Four. I got one for free. Well, oh, I his. gave birth to three more, but I have my, Rodney's daughter, I consider my daughter. And then you, you decided like to have another one in your 40s. Yeah. Were you scared? I was scared I wouldn't be able to do it, but once, I mean, it's so great having a kid in your 40s. Really? Oh, my God. Every single moment is precious, and you're already like... You already know who you are and what you can do in this world, and you don't need to be going out to figure it out. And you, there's a, it's fine to miss the parties, yeah. you know. Right. It's like. Right, and you know how to be a mother. Right. And you know how to have a kid. Yeah. So there's no freaking out. Right. Yeah. No freak out. <laughs> and you can make it like I, I imagine if you can, if you've had four, you're like, well, this one, I, I think I can, I got it right now. Well, I, th- the others were girls, mm-hmm. and my, my son is my youngest with John, and mm-hmm. I realized I didn't know anything about boys really you are so different yes <laughs> i don't know if you know that I, i'm completely aware I, every day I, I thought it was like well you know you can raise them the same and it works it's so different he's yeah. so physical <laughs> you know my girls would like sit with their teapots and their dolls and for hours and tiny play and he's like <laughs> destroying yeah. everything and you got to buy trucks and cars yeah and- Oh, and weapons. Weapons. Yeah. How did that feel to buy the first weapon for yeah, the Yeah, you know, I'm like, I was on the board of an anti-gun violence organization <laughs> for 10 years. I still work uh, in anti-gun violence, and yet my son would turn sticks into guns. Got to do it. Got to do it, right? Yeah, Got to give him the gun. This <laughs> <laughs> is part of being a boy. Sorry. It's <laughs> the way it is. And, now, and, and so he's never uh, you know, had a son. And, and like, how is it? I mean, I imagine that the energy of, of what goes on in, a, in in parenting has got to do with the uh, with the parents. I mean, how how is he different than Rodney? John? Yeah. Oh, that is such a dangerous question that I am not even going to touch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I'll, okay, I'll give you a headline version. Yeah. Rodney and I, when we were together could not tell you if we owned a key to open the door of our house, could not tell you where the post office was. I uh-huh. mean, it was like we would talk about Plato and Christopherson's uh-huh. writing for hours, but, right. you know, we just had no idea. You were detached from reality. Didn't know how to pay bills, nothing. <laughs> you just had, John, would you just have business managers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And John, like, he's so solid. He's so practical, you know, good Jewish husband takes care of me. Knows mm-hmm. how to fix the boiler, or whatever it is. A down Jew, in the and basement. he knows how to fix a boiler. <laughs> you got, you got a, you know, you got a very special one there. Yeah, you like. You know, I was going along with it as a Jew. I'm like, oh, that's nice. He's sensitive. He fixes. Wow. Well, you got a special okay. Jew. All right. Let me let me rephrase that. He knows when the boiler is broken, and he can call call somebody to fix it. <laughs> okay. All right. I was like, a, a Jew fixing a boiler. That's that's a unique. Well, that, I don't want to judge. You know, some guys know how to do that stuff. But so you married a Jewish guy. Is he a religious Jewish guy? No, he's he's not culturally Jewish. Culturally like, Jewish. Like that's we what all he are. Says. That's, that's right. right. New York Jew. New York Jew. Oh, good. Exactly. All right. What? Fourth, fourth generation New York Jew. So it's in him. Yeah. What's his What's his family come from? Did they own a Russia? Right. Did they, but what was the business in New York? Was it clothing? Was it meat? No, that's <laughs> so funny. His dad owned a uh, a store on West Forty Sixth Street, and they yeah. sold everything from televisions to toothpaste. Oh, okay. Kind of like a, the everything store. Everything store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cheap department store. Yeah. What do you need? Yeah. 
Well, that's a, well, that's exciting. It's like you've had three or four lives. I have had three or four lives. Well, I, I know it's it's a trip, man. When I was like, you know, I I, I was looking over your lives, and uh, it, it's it's amazing when people allow themselves to evolve. Do you feel like it was? Do you feel like you've done that? Did, was that something that naturally happened, or, or how many times did you hit this wall of like, oh fuck this, I gotta well, let this a shit? Lot. Yeah, I mean. Don't you have to hit a wall of, oh, fuck this, before you can move on to something else? Hopefully, if you're yeah. not going to be bitter. Exactly. Now we're back. That's full circle. So, like, in this record, you know, when you look at the songs on it, and I, I mean, how long was the process of doing uh, The River and the Thread? About a year and a half, year and a half. And what what is different? I mean, now you you, you did this with a son. You did this with a new husband who's... Uh... Well, we've been married 19 years. Right, but have you ever done a record with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, you've we done fell several. in love making a record. He was producing it? Yeah, he was producing it. Okay. We, this is the first record that we... It was a total collaboration. He wrote all the music. I wrote all the lyrics, except for the one song we wrote with Rodney. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We felt like it was a, I mean, at the end I said, you know, we got to put both our pictures on the cover. This is a real collaboration. He did on the back. He goes, no, just put a small one on the back. Well, so there is sort of closure, though, that you did a song with both of your husbands. I mean, that's sort of closure, isn't it? Yeah, and the fact that it was a Civil War (laughs) ballad, and the, you know, in the chorus it says, let the union be made whole. Yeah. Ridiculously metaphorical. Did you, but you didn't know that going in? No. But... Wait, what were we talking about? About making oh all my lives and making this record. Well, yeah, like what you know, how what what are the emotions in this one? Or me, you know, what where are you at in this one? Because I listen to it and it it all sounds it's very deep, it's very mature, but it's not heavy. Some of it's heavy, but it's not like oh god, what's no. going on with her? Well, because yeah, <laughs> it's a concept record. I mean, it's a very old fashioned concept record about the South. All the songs are about the South. They're uh-huh. full of characters yeah. and geography. Some blues in here. Yeah, yep. and more third person narratives than I've ever written. So that was different. Well, that must be something you had to bring to the table exclusively, because I mean, I I'm not I'm not imagining uh, that John is is necessarily a lyricist, no. not a lyricist, but I mean, you you half grew up in the South. No, I didn't. I not at up, all. I grew up right here uh-huh. in Southern California. Yeah, I was born in Memphis. At age three, we left there and came to California. And but you never went back there. I went. I lived there on and off for about a decade. But right. I, I've been in New York for 23 years. I lived in Europe for a short time. I've li- I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. Where's your mother from? San Antonio. From Texas. Yeah. And and your father's from where? Arkansas. So that's, you know, that's... They're, they're both Southern. But see, that's the thing. When we were going down South to the Delta... Yeah. And we started getting inspired to write these songs. And I thought that being born in Memphis yeah. and the Southern connections to my ancestors was just a footnote Mm -hmm. and i started to see how deep those connections were and the the my extended family still down there you know see the farm where my dad grew up and how medievally hard my grandmother's life was yeah raise seven children and pick cotton and no electricity in the beginning and you went to the farm oh yeah it's still there oh yeah i'm working with arkansas state university to restore it they want to put like a music heritage site there. so wait so it's just uh, uh it's all broken down well they restored the house 
Uh, that that it was Johnny a, grew up in. Yeah, it yeah. was a New Deal era colony. Yeah. Five hundred cottages, uh-huh. only forty left, and his family's was one of the cottages left. So we've been restoring that. So I was taking a lot of trips through Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama. My friend in Alabama was teaching me to sew, and she said that line. She said, "You have to love the thread." Oh, I know. <laughs> it just killed. You're like, oh, do you don't mind if I write that yeah. down? <laughs> <laughs> no chance of forgetting that. <laughs> that's well, that's astounding. So th- this was sort of like the journey to sort of um, you know to find your deeper self, you know, outside of your own issues in a way. Like I think, but we, I didn't know that at the time. What did you know at the time? We were just going down and. I was there, and I got very moved by the people I reconnected with, by going to Arkansas and seeing what my own ancestry was, by learning how to sew in Alabama, you know, by driving through Mississippi to going to Robert Johnson's grave. And you had to do that. Where, yeah. So, so you guys made a list. You, 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 uh, you, you had the idea of a concept album, or you didn't? We started writing the songs okay. just from the trips and being inspired. Yeah. And then after like the second song, John said, there's something here. We could make an album about this. So it wasn't as if we go, okay, we're going to write a back record about the South, and let's go. It just started and then we went oh this is what's unfolding well it's interesting because you know the the roots of southern music and and sort of like the roots of what you sort of evolved into as an artist well the country music is the country music but then the blues is the blues and you know them coming together is something that happened a little later you know like through you know appalachia and then the delta but to go to robert johnson's and pay those kind of respects i mean you're doing deep work in that area. Deep work and deep <laughs> respect, you know. Well, it's and only like 20 songs, really, or so, right? The the Robert Johnson catalog yeah. is that one. Oh, he died at 26. Yeah, and the one Library of Congress recordings that yeah. everybody sits there and goes, okay, I, I can, I'm getting it. Yeah. I'm getting it. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what was the feeling of going to that crossroads? Well, that was incredible, and particularly it was in this churchyard called Little Zion Churchyard, uh-huh. and there's no big sign that says Robert Johnson's grave over here. You know, you right. just find it, right. which was also kind of a metaphor for all of that area in Mississippi where Hallam Wolf sat on the porch and played the blues. There's no plaques. Charlie Platten, Patton. No, you find Charlie it. Charlie Patton. There's like yeah. one picture of that guy. Yeah. I did. You. I went to Jack. I interviewed Jack White, and you know he's a blues nut, and uh, and that was my that was my ticket. And he has that you know that one picture of Charlie yeah. Patton. Yeah. He's got a huge. Pick, it's so blown cool. up like it's like six feet by five feet in his office i'm like charlie Patton, and he's like yep and then we just go <laughs> yeah that's so cool well that stuff is great man it's great i mean all the juke joints where these guys played you know most of them no longer exist but dockery farms where they picked cotton and played in the juke joints at right. night we went there we went to william faulkner's house met this 90 something year old man uh, i said uh, lee mccarty and i said did you know William Faulkner? And he said, oh, Bill and Estelle were lovely people. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> no. Still one of he them around. Fr- still one of those around. So it was so heavy. Yeah. Going from that, you know, to tallahatchie bridge to robert johnson's grave i mean it was kind of like we had to get away and get back to new york and just process it well what was the what compelled you to do faulkner to uh, To john uh, john wrote his college thesis on either which one sound and the fury no i think it was light in august Uh uh-huh maybe it was sound and the fury that's a tough one yeah yeah you gotta go i guess you know that that's a mountain of intelligence there yeah 
Holy shit. He loves Faulkner. Loves him. So that was that was an experience for John. Uh-huh. So, okay, so you go to Robert Johnson, you go to the Juke Joints, you go to Arkansas. What did you find out about your family that you you, you had no idea of? And then what do you got, cousins still? Or Yeah, you... in Memphis. Um, well, that realization about how hard my grandmother's life was, that really hit me. I had been to that house as a teenager, and it was like, When she oh. was alive. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, this is, you know, cool. This, whatever, <laughs> Primitive. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. And then to go back... And it was empty in the empty fields. I mean, there's that line in the song about her, the empty fields, mm-hmm. the you know, the mud and tears. Mm-hmm. And to just think what she went through, how she lived and how different my life is. My son's a fifth generation New Yorker. And my grandmother was a cotton farmer who raised seven kids with no electricity. Seven kids. Yeah. How, now, how many cousins you got running around? Oh, hundreds. I don't even know all my cousins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are any of the uh, aunts or uncles still around? Uh, yeah. You really? Two of them, two of them. That's wild, right? I know. Did you go eat with them and stuff? Sure. And, you know, I in middle age, you're interested what the thread is. Like, yep. who you come from, who your kids come from. Like, if you don't know who you come from, they're not going to know who they come from and where they come from. And geography... I mean, I always love maps, but geography itself just has such a deep resonance for me. Like Mississippi, the personality of Mississippi is so haunted. Yeah. It's so haunted. The whole South is a trip, man. It's like you could not put Mississippi up by North Dakota and it's, you know, it doesn't work. It's so itself. There's something about the South, like in all its different facets, that where I go down there, and I've got no family connection to it, but it's heavy, man. It's so heavy. It's like, and you can't can't ignore it. You can't ignore it, and you go, how did William Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Harper Lee, Helen Wolf, Robert Johnson, like, how did this happen? Yeah. You know? They all came. Something to do with the Mississippi, I think, in the floodplains. Yeah. You feel it? Yeah, I think so. It's also something to do with the you know the the, the post slavery world, yes. of, of of mixing um, the 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 different histories of people. That's right. Some it, voluntary, some not so voluntary. Right, and you can't ignore the violence too and the ugliness. Oh, yeah, t- well, it, it took me a long time as someone who just visits down there not to characterize it that way. You yeah, you can't characterize you can't. it that way. You can't generalize. And in fact, on this record. There might have been a temptation to proselytize about that, to go, okay, look, it's not all, this isn't, you know, let go of your stereotypes. We didn't want to do that even. It was just like, let's just point the era in where this incredible music came from mm-hmm. and to the beauty and strangeness of that. Right. Yeah, I, I've talked to, uh, who did I talk to recently? I've talked to a few Southerners. Uh, Patterson Hood from the Drive By Truckers uh-huh. and, and Jason Isbell, who's like I love a, Jason. Oh my Jeez, god, my god. Yeah, I did. You know, I talked to them on separate days. You know, I was on a show with Jason, and you know, and and those guys. Well, certainly Patterson has done a lot in his heart and in his mind to try to 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 be proud and reconcile. You know, his his own past in in his own family mm-hmm. and the people that were around him. You know, with that reputation, you know, and how do you how do you deal with the racism? And he he wrote a song about George Wallace, you know, the, to to sort of, you know, not it was George Wallace in hell, but the, he found sympathy. He he was able to empathize. Do you know? I was just talking about this very subject to someone about the burden our generation feels 
southern southerners the burden they feel to heal yeah the racism and the ugliness uh-huh. and the hatred of past generations. Uh-huh. I know a lot of people like that. Well, and yeah. I feel some of that, too, because in past generations in my family, you know, some of it wasn't pretty. My dad did, was not that way. He did not have hate in him at all. He seemed pretty, like, you know, open-hearted. He in, was. In terms of, like, his embracing, I guess, you know, primarily, I don't know much, but, you know, just his his sort of encouragement of Dylan and stuff seemed to be like this... Interest, like he was open-minded totally he was ecumenical about everything where do you think that came from i don't know that's the soul of a great artist i think yeah did you ever struggle with that being ecumenical yeah myself no i took a page from his book you know i i'm curious right and if you're really deeply curious it's hard to be judgmental isn't it yep well, I think what you're talking about middle, middle age is sort of interesting because yeah, I've been trying, I've been wrestling with the idea of empathy, and you know I'm not sure that I I have enough of it naturally, mm. and I think that what you're talking about, you know, after you go through a life of you know pursuing your own interests, and you know, and for you, I imagine on some level, you know, just you know a little bit of living in the shadow of a name, mm-hmm. that you, you know it's hard to it's hard to really find the the heart, space in your heart to do what you did with this record. To say, like, look, you know, I need to know, you know, what that life was like, too. At this point in your life, really be able to empathize with your grandmother. Yeah. I sometimes think I over-empathize. Oh, yeah? And then it leads to obsession and guilt and, you know. I think that's called codependency. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But in midlife, you're right. You... You, you take those things to. seriously and you care, you know, and you care what they leave you, good or bad. It's hard, man. It's it so, is hard. It, like, because, you know, like with my own life, you know, I got issues with my dad. Sure. And don't, I don't we all? Yeah. And with I our parents. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, you know, some of them, like, I don't know if they're going to get good. I don't know. They may not. Damn it. Right. You just got to live with it. That's that ache we were talking about initially, the heartache of that. Of acceptance. Acceptance. Right. No yeah. matter how hard it is. I know exactly what you mean. You know, Music heals a lot of this That's for me. That's for sure, man. It really does. That John and I, because we play music together, sometimes I just don't like him. He's just, I'm mad at him. But we have to go do a show. And we go out on stage, and he plays something, and I see his essence. And I go, everything else is just so petty. That's who that human being is. That's why he's on the earth. Look what he's giving to an audience. I love him. That's great. Yeah. I'm getting choked up. Yeah. Music, it's the greatest healing force in the world. Well, you know, it's weird. It's like, um, you know, I was just in Cleveland. and um, Did you go to the Hall of Fame? Yeah, the second time. Yeah. It was my second time there. And did you, did you go look at that the movie that they have right at the beginning? There's a movie called Mystery Train where they, they just follow this train all the way through the history of rock and roll. It's like 12 minutes long. I don't remember seeing it. Yeah, that. it's it's pretty great. And uh, you know, they they go from like the Delta and they go through all of all of it, you know, Appalachia and it's just it's really nicely done. But for some reason they had they had the Stones version of Love in Vain, you know, as a piece of that. And they had the lyrics come up in subtitles. And it, you know, recently in my life cuz I play guitar, you know, amateurly, but but the power of the blues to ease your heart is is so fucking phenomenal like and, and when you really like as an older guy when you still have that where you're like i need to i need to play a little blues just so i can relax <laughs> i love that <laughs> i love that because at this point in our lives yeah sometimes it's 
so dark that it's beyond the blues. So right. the blues will bring you up. Bring you back. <laughs> but that's what it did. Yeah. Right? I mean, you got to figure where that music came from was to bring them back from fucking slavery. Right. You know, not just heartbreak or this woman right. done me wrong. But I mean, that music and Oppression. that- Oppression. Had to like rise above that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Th- and- we're lucky to get it, you know, because it's, it's still healing us even today. It's, it's true. And I yeah. don't know that people appreciate it as much as they should. That's the weird thing is that blues is one that, that it's a type of music that at some point everyone kind of could play okay. Like every bar band could do their version. 12 bar blues. Sure, yeah. sure. You know, yeah. everyone could pull off a Freddie King tune or whatever. Yeah. But the cats that can really do it, like can really go there, or really feel it. Because it's simple music. You're going to make it your own. That's right. the only way the blues works. Like it's three chords. Like, you know, anyone can play it, but can you play it and mean it? Yeah. That's the difference. I always felt just too much of a nice white girl to really be able to do the blues. But you did some blues on here, really. Yeah, it's bluesy, and there's, you know, there's everything from really rootsy, almost Appalachian, hardcore, to bluesy stuff, to even Stephen Foster-ish stuff. Yeah. And that kind of country pop, Tony Joe White stuff, it's... There's, we reference all of that music without mimicking it. Um, but to do straight blues, I would just be so self-conscious. I, I've only seen, there's really only a few, few people that aren't show-offs that can like you know, really nail it, you know? Like I once saw uh, John Hammond, you know, do, it was like weird. It was like I was in Tucson. And I was visiting my brother at college, and there was some Tucson Blues Society. We're bringing John Hammond out. And it was like me and 20 people, uh. and just him with a national steel. And he did a, a full version of Hellhounds on My Trail, like uh-huh. to the note. Oh, and like, God. I'll never forget it. You know, like, I, I don't even understand that song. And like, yeah, I didn't realize you were such a blues fan. You're deep into it, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's all I play on guitar, but I don't listen to it all the time. But lately, I've been, I can't get it. Like, I never quite got Paul Butterfield. But like then I realized like those guys were the first guys to really take on the Chicago blues as it is yeah. and and hammer that shit out interpret so I, it yeah yeah and yeah. and like I've been like listening to the like the, I've been listening to that a lot. What else do you listen to? I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, like well, I listened to your record about three times, and what else did I listen to today? I've been listening to like you know it's it's weird because I'm in this situation where like I'm going to talk to you. And, you know, I know you're Johnny Cash's daughter. And I know that, like, that doesn't, you know, that's not something you want to talk about for the rest of your life in a specific way. I understand that. I've talked to Jacob Dylan, and that's even touchier. Yeah. I know. You know why? Because he's a man. Yeah. I mean, I truly believe that. If I had been a man, it would be so much harder for me. It's long and deep, and it's hard to get out from under. Well, there's a, the, I think the trickiest thing is, is the mixture of, of pride and, yeah. and, and then the lack of identity. Yeah. Well... Like I said, being a woman made it easier for me, yeah. but I certainly pushed it all away a long time, 20s into my 30s. Yeah. You know, like I have to find out what I can do well. And there are still plenty of people who just want to try to look through me to see my dad. But my antenna is so good with that, I just shut it down. Well, well, no one. Here's the interesting thing about like you know assumed or 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 some of the feelings that go around nepotism in general is there's no fucking way that anyone can say like she's just riding on your debt, you know, because you're such a <laughs> defined talent. You know, after like the fifth album, no one's gonna say like oh she's just doing she's just got a lucky break. They you still know, do say that some people. That is ridiculous. I know. No, I mean, like, you know, the psychos on Twitter are like. 
like no, don't even no. i know don't even read them right no well don't well, it's hard not to read them but certainly don't respond to them no but no. it hurts like when they push those buttons right yeah and the <laughs> fact that it's still a button is surprising to me like i'm still trying to prove myself at my age you know it's, but aren't i mean I don't Maybe think, that's normal for mo- for everyone. I don't, know. I don't know if you're still trying to prove yourself, but you, the insecurity doesn't necessarily go away. No, and I think that's part of an artist's life. That uh, no doubt is insecurity. No, because it's that Chris Christopherson thing. Is that part right. of you is always looking for the negative thing? Like they're the ones who are right. That's right. They're, I'm a phony. They're going to find right. out. I'm yeah. not good at it. I'll never be. I, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it's part and parcel. My daughter is an artist and she's a really great writer. And she was talking to me about this. I said, honey, you're going to deal with that the rest of your life. It's just part of it. Use it. You right. know, use well, yeah. it. Well, don't, yeah, be, don't let it kill you. Yeah. Because that, that's the same thing. That insecurity, you know, somehow or another, if you have... A singularity of vision, if you know that you got no other choices. Right. Like, for whatever reason, that's the other thing about an artist's life is like, you know, like, don't you want to do anything else? No, I don't know how. It's not an option. I don't even think about it. This is it. That's no, no matter how bad it gets, you're like, I, there, is there a plan B? No, there's no plan B. What are you going to do? Quit? Yeah. And do what? Exactly. <laughs> and then be a quitter because you have to fire yourself. <laughs> like, I quit myself. That's the worst. Oh, that's good. That about sums it up. Right? Yeah. How do you quit? <laughs> it's who you are. Exactly. It's your DNA. Yeah. What yeah. Do you, how do you disappear from that? But I mean, you did make a choice at some point to say, like, well, I'm, I'm going to go into country music. No, I did not say I'm going to go into country music. I said I'm going to be a songwriter. Okay. And then, you know, I grew up in Southern California in the 60s and 70s, and I was listening to Buffalo Springfield and Elton John and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the great, and Joni Mitchell and great songwriters that really moved me. And you were here. And I was You're here. In the valley. I was here. I didn't care about country music right. until later. I came back around to it. So what? Wh- how did it start for you? I mean, were you? Were, did you have access to that crew, or you, were you hanging out up in the canyon and you know and yeah, partying with the Crosby, Stills, and Nash? No, no and, I was too young for that. You were young. Yeah, yeah, I was a little on the other side of that. Uh-huh. But um, no, I just love that music, and I knew I wanted to be a songwriter. And then when I left high school and was with my dad, and he started teaching me some what he thought were essential country songs you went down there mm-hmm, to so, nashville and, and, and you stayed there for a couple of years then i moved to london so you stayed with your dad for two years yeah two, and, he, and years. that's where he, he was like well he showed you what he could show you yeah i mean he loved all music too but he didn't want me to not know these other songs you know what de- were the specific songs well like hank williams songs uh yeah. you know um and story songs like Battle of New Orleans, Jimmy Rogers, what he got through, those kind of songs. Didn't he cover Long Black Veil? Of course. Jesus, that song kills me. Yeah. Kills me. Yeah. I listened to the band's version of it and I tear up every, every fucking I time. recorded it. I love the song. Oh I think that song is kind of a centerpiece of American Roots music. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's an unbelievable I song. Like, I, like, just thinking about it gets me choked up. I'm not even sure why. Just the idea of the sacrifice is too much. Yeah, well, the, oh the central character has integrity. That's right. one thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that'll do it. Yeah, he doesn't sell out his... Uh, best friend and it's a or his ghost, wife or he doesn't wife. sell the woman out he doesn't sell the woman out and um he could have gotten shot anyways 
Right. Like if he would have gotten caught, the friendship's over and he, and the guy could have shot him. We're talking about the story of this song. Most people are listening going, what? What? <laughs> oh, the, the song is about a guy who who is uh, who looks like a guy who killed somebody, though he didn't kill the person. Uh, he he was he couldn't say where he was because he was having sex with his best friend's wife. That's right. And he wouldn't say it. So he yeah. took the rap. Yeah. And he was hung for the murder right. because he didn't want to out the woman or or That's or, right. or be And the judge says to him, If you have an alibi, I'll let you go and he won't say it. He won't give an alibi. And she's standing there. Yeah. Watching it. And then he's dead and she visits his grave. This is all in the song. I know. Yeah. Uh, wait, how long ago did you record it? Uh, 2009. So later. On the list, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did did he play that one for you? Sure, that was on the list. That's why I recorded it. The list of songs that he... That you... he made for me, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that's when I came back to country music and really took it in. And learning the Carter family songs, you know, learning these Appalachian songs, that was really important to me. Those were the first songs I learned to play on guitar. Uh-huh. And what happened in London? Um... You became big there. That was where you broke, right? No, not at all. I went and I worked at CBS Records and I lived, you know, hand to mouth in London and for six months and I grew up there and I came back and I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And I came back to Los Angeles and I went to the Lee Strasberg Institute for six months. Yeah. And then I said, I don't want to be an actor. I just want to be a songwriter. And I was avoiding going into the same field as my dad. I just couldn't see how I could do it. So then I went back to Europe and made a record. And that, well, that's what I, I guess I was yeah. thinking about. And that record sort of put you on the map a little? Well, not really. It did get me signed to an American label. Uh-huh. They heard it and they signed me. So then things started. Now, like during that time, though, I mean, who were you talking to? I mean, who are your friends in terms of like, well, I'm going to do this? You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know it's like crazy, but I'm going to be a songwriter. I didn't have a lot of friends then, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I I was a really solitary person, and I didn't confide much. I didn't ask for advice. I just uh, followed my nose, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I really wrestled with it. So when you got the label deal, how did they want to form you? Because I mean, you you were doing some fairly mainstream country stuff. Well, the first record I made, you know, I had a, um, was the second record I made, I had a pop hit on it. So I was making what they used to call crossover music. Uh It was on the pop charts and the country charts. And I was still following my nose, you know, writing songs because of the, I was a hybrid, the influences I had in Southern California, the songs I learned from being with my dad, you know, I was definitely a hybrid artist. But the infrastructure of mainstream country was what it was. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it was different, you know. By by 1990, I saw I did not fit in, and that it that's was, a long time. I mean, that's yeah. like that's seven albums, man. One, two, no, three, four, it? five. Well, the first one's 78. Roseanne Cash. Right and Wrong is 79. Seven Year Ache is 81. Somewhere in the Stars is 82. Rhythm and Romance is 85. King's Record Shop is 87. That was it then. That was it. Yeah. But that also coincides with your divorce. Yeah. From a guy who works within country music. Well, I made this... I King's Record Shop was a huge success. It, I was the first woman to have four number one singles from one album on the country charts from that record. Oh, and, my God. Yeah, it was huge. So I had leverage. Right. So I said to Sony, can I produce my own record the next time out? 
And they said, okay. So I wrote all the songs, and I made this dark little acoustic record called Interiors. And this is before Rick Rubin had even the idea. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I was I felt like, well, I've done the best work of my life. And they came in and they said, we can't do anything with this. Oh, my God. It crushed me. So, um, you know, long story short, they let me go. They transferred me to New York, the New York division. Well, how? And then it was nominated for a Grammy in the folk category. Isn't that how that happened? <clears throat> yeah. In the folk category. Right. So so everybody got that. That's not what I was doing anymore. But you you did it. How much you got to do? do you, you know, I mean, to have a like four four hits on a fucking record, like a country record. And I felt so unhappy. But you nailed it. Clearly, it's like you know, you're your own person. You know that world. You honored whatever your legacy was yeah. enough. Yeah. Now, how does that coincide with the with the falling apart of your marriage? I don't know. I'm not objective enough to answer that question. What was <clears throat> interiors came out of that falling apart. Those songs were dark. And in fact, Robert Criscow in the Village Voice reviewed it and he said, This is a divorce record. And I wasn't even separated at the time. I went, What? Oh, he woke you up? You're like, Oh, maybe it maybe it is time. <laughs> well, I lived lived to it. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh my God. So, all right, so you get the Grammy for Best Folk Record, and you realize... Well, I didn't get it. Uh, John Prine got it that year. Are you, hey, what are you going to do? He deserved it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Love John. Do you know him? Sure. You guys all know each other. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh, my God. He probably... Oh, okay. All right, so now you know that you've consciously followed your heart and turned your back on, you know, all that is that machine. Whose back got turned, though? I don't know. Is that a rhetorical question? Yeah, it is rhetorical because people say that you turned your back on it and you left, you know, and you betrayed. Right, that bad word choice. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. But but I've thought about that. And it's like they didn't want the record I made for them, uh -huh. you know, that my hand was forced. I was either going to stay and do music for the label and for radio. And be pushed into and stay in that. To right. just to be a machine. And keep doing carbon copies of myself until right, I just died from unhappiness. They, I couldn't and, do that. And they knew you could make hits. So the pressure must right. have been extraordinary. Extraordinary. Right. And I could not do it. So I just turned my little life inside out, you know. I'm going to New York. I'm going to marry a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to have any more hits. And I'm going to be broke. And I'm going to give up my five carat diamond and my big house, and that you know I'm going to be having stoop sales to make eighty bucks. Come on, you're doing a little better than that. No, I swear to God, I was a mess. I didn't know how to handle money. I was broke. I moved to New York. My kids back and forth. It was crazy, and I didn't have any more hits. It was really hard for a while. I I wrote a book of short stories. I started getting my life together, which was well received. Yeah. And you had never you had never written fiction? No. Wow. And then I started to get happy. Like, I'm following my true life now. Mm-hmm. Well, you seem great. I'm good. I'm living backwards. I'm happy. And you wrote a children's life. book, too? Yeah. And that did well? It did okay. Yeah. My, my memoir did, did okay. Yeah. Got some nice reviews. Now, to come back around to... Well, the album you wrote that was inspired by the 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 passing of your stepmom and my dad and my stepsister. Oh. A lot of people died in that year. Black Cat. Like, there's a couple pretty heavy songs in there too. <clears throat> yeah, and so, it's, musically it sounds really great. Who produced that one? 
Uh, that was half produced by Bill Bottrell and John Leventhal. Uh-huh. It's funny. Bill produced one half and John produced this side B, <laughs> as we say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did you find that you... Did it help you get closure? I don't believe in closure. I know. We talked about that. Yeah. But, I mean, but I mean, it took you... I mean, your dad was kind of ill for a while. Yeah, he was. And, you know, I often wonder, is that good preparation? You know, having that anxiety, the background noise of your thought being your sick parent for a decade? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, pain is pain, loss is loss. But were, loss. You, were, was there, were you always close to him, though? Yeah, oh. I was. Yeah? I was. And, and your, your mom as well, right? I had a harder time being close to my mom, to tell you the truth. Huh. I mean, you know, mothers and daughters. Yeah. She was uh, very strict and she had she had a lot of fear about my life. She she, she didn't had seen it. Yeah. I, mean, I can't imagine it's, the period of time she was married to him that it could have been great. Yeah. No, not very long, right? <laughs> well, right. Your I, the husband gets on drugs and goes on the road and <laughs> That's it. That's it. He leaves then somebody else comes along. Yeah. Reasonable fear. Reasonable fear. And she didn't really understand the life of an artist, you know. That was very confusing and scary to her. Well, in your journey back in doing this record, did you understand why they were together? Yeah, but they were children. Right. 20 and 22 years old. It was what you did. Yeah. Grab on. Yeah. Hold on. They were deeply in love, but they were also children who didn't have a clue. Yeah. And what else did you find out about about you know your family when you went down there that surprised you other than how hard your grandmother worked? Well, my own connection, you know, that geography can stay with you. Mm-hmm. Geography can be inside you. Mm-hmm. And uh, my love for it, these crazy characters I know down there who I feel connected to, powerful connection, you know, and that's part of art, isn't yeah. it? Like these yeah. people who are so out there and strange and live, look to the rest of the world through this prism that just refracts things really weirdly, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. I love them. I feel connected to them. Yeah. And I finally feel like I've, I hate to use the word integrated because it sounds like therapy, but integrated this part of myself that I had pushed away for a long time. I'm not Southern. I have nothing to do with it. Yeah, actually, part of me really is Southern. Yeah. Even though I'm a New Yorker, I I embrace that part now. Well, do you, what do you think the rebellion was all that time? Because well, like even like I I kind of vaguely remember sort of pictures of you where you're kind of punky for a while. Yeah. And. You know, you're yeah. like there was that new wave period. Yeah, I mean, oh wh- my God, the synthesizers, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Betty Davis eyes. <laughs> yeah, like everyone, like, and I imagine that at some different points in your career, you know, that you always you weren't always with great producers or that people that you thought were doing your vision and no. justice. No, no. But what was the fight against? You thought. I was naturally a rebel. I just, I didn't want what was old, what was entrenched, what was tradition, what was my parents, what was authority. I was just against all of it, blanket, blanket rebellion. Right. And that's an exhausting stance to keep up through adulthood. (sighs) It is, right? Yeah. It's like, find out who you are and 
don't rebel against the rest of it. Just let it be. It's yeah. over there. Right. So. So you let it go. It looks ungracious on a middle-aged woman to still be rebelling against people who don't threaten you. Huh. I think I have to tell that to somebody. <laughs> I think there's someone I know who could use that information. <laughs> oh, my God. I could have used that information 20 years ago. <laughs> because it's exhausting. It's draining. It's exhausting. It, 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 makes, it makes you ill. Right. So how... You can move through the world with so much more ease, you mm -hmm. know? Now, when... when um, Were you there when your father died? I was. And what was that like? Anyway, it's are a your shallow parents, question. Your, but they're both still alive. Yeah. Only a person whose parents are alive could ask that. It's kind of, it's an innocent question. Okay. Do you have a, an answer? No. I mean, you, someone leaves who holds half of your DNA. They leave the planet forever. That changes you irrevocably. And there's a... I wrote about this in my memoir. I had the strangest feeling that the day he died was okay because he would still, that that day he was alive, those 24 hours. And I was watching the clock for when it changed over to the next day when I knew he would be dead forever. And that was the day that was intolerable. Yeah. Do you feel like he was at peace? Um, I certainly hope so. I don't, I didn't share his religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I feel like whatever he believed, I hope that's what he got. Because then he would be at peace. I, oh, God. That's, that's such an interesting idea. That, you know, we can, you know, you have to respect people's faith. Yeah. Even if you don't have it, and that's that, right. And and even if you don't believe it, and the best in in the end, the best you can hope for is that they get what they believe. Do you know? I I kind of believe that that whatever belief system you set up, maybe when you die, since energy doesn't die, it uh -huh. just changes form. Maybe you do get what you set up for yourself. I I, th I think that's optimistic. It is, and non-judgmental also. I'm a very optimistic person. Always have been. And all your kids had a relationship with their grandparents. and Yeah. My son, unfortunately, he was four when my dad died, so uh -huh. he doesn't remember. My son has no grandparents anymore. It's kind of sad. But he's got a lot of big sisters. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. He loves he'll, women. He'll get, he'll, yeah. He's, he's surrounded <laughs> by them. Yeah. So how now how much do you tour? I mean, what what do you do you make a reasonable schedule for yourself? Oh, or? yeah. Because I got a 15-year-old at home, and uh -huh. I like to be there and go to a parent-teacher meeting. And like I told you... Every moment is precious when you have a child that late in life. Right. Because you know you miss some things. Yeah. Right. And you know how short childhood is. Right. So we do it reasonably. We do strategic strikes, you know, uh -huh. go out twice a month for several days, a few days, come home. I'm there when he comes home from school. I honestly think I'm with him more than a woman who was a high-powered lawyer. Uh, probably, yeah. Who has to be gone eight to eight every day. Probably emotionally, too. Well, I'm connected to my kids deep and, way. And when you perform, how how big is the band you go out with? Um, there are six of us. Uh -huh. We just did four nights at San Francisco Jazz. How four, was it? Four sold out nights. It was so much fun. 
I mean, I sometimes feel on stage, I think this could be the last time I ever do this. Uh-huh. So I'm going to get out of my own fucking way. And, and enjoy it. Yeah. Well, not only enjoy it, but but be in service of the music. Just, you know, not let it be about me, but let this huge source of greatness called music, uh-huh. <laughs> let it exist on this stage. <laughs> That's amazing. So how much, uh, how, how much of your catalog do you do? I mean, like from all of it? Well, you know what we've been doing, which has been thrilling, mm-hmm. is the first half of the show we perform the album in sequence mm-hmm. live because it is a record that it, has a narrative it's a concept right yeah. then we have an intermission and then i do stuff from my catalog so i saw lou reed do that at radio city about 20 years ago with which album magic and loss which is oh my, my favorite lou yeah. Reed yes. record. <laughs> which is like black cadillac when i was making black cadillac i started looking around are there other records about death magic and loss Leave it to Lou. So inspiring. Yeah. So he did the record in sequence live that night, and I was crying the whole concert. Yeah. I thought, someday I'm going to do that. Right. And that was it. That was the template. Yep. And then he came back and what, did uh, with some satellite yeah, did love? Some, and that's right. Did an intermission, came back, did, you know. Walk some, in the wild. Zone. Yeah, of course. So what do you do when you do the encore? <laughs> well, we last night we did. Um, <laughs> this is so sick. We came out and did motherless children as an encore. It's like the crowd is on their feet, you know, and so excited. We come out and do this dark, dark song, but we really rock it. Did you record that? Yeah. On um, which album is that? The list. Yeah. I got to get that record. Yeah, you'll like it. It's well, I mean, all, Lucinda did that early on too. That's a dark song, but we. We, man, it's so much aggression in how we play it, so that's cool. So is that the only, like, oldie that you do? Like, I mean, that's not your... Yeah, traditional? Well, I do Long Black Veil. Those two? Yeah. (laughs) Those are good ones, huh? Yeah. And then what do you close with? Um... Well, the we closed the show with my song, Seven Year Ache. That was my biggest hit, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, then... Motherless is the encore. I mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, sometimes I change it up. Mm-hmm. Do you like to, uh, like, do you, I, I, it's great to be on stage, right? And just watch people play. It is. I have grown into it. In the beginning, I thought performance was a torture chamber. I thought it was this place that you went to be judged. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's punishment. Right? Now you right. will pay. <laughs> right. You've worked like, hard, and now you will be punished. Right, you will be punished. <laughs> it was the Chris Christopherson school of yeah. performance. Yeah. There will be hundreds of people what, waiting for you to on fail. The, on their Blackberry with their yeah. arms folded, right. falling asleep, waiting yeah. for you to fail. So now I, I used it as like a schoolroom, uh-huh. really, and a place to learn and grow and... Like I said, try to get out of my own way. And now I feel so lucky that this is what I get to do. And I don't see it as judgment. I don't even see it as all about me. I see it as energy exchange. You oh, know? yeah, absolutely. It's, that's the gift of music there. Oh, yeah. It's magic. It is. It's an honor talking to you, Roseanne. Ah, oh, it's my my pleasure. Did, did, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Better than Travis? Tavis? Better than Tavis. Oh, thank God. <laughs> That's our show, folks. I really enjoyed talking to Roseanne. Uh, thank you for listening. Go to WTFPod.com. Get the WTF app if you'd like. Get some JustCoffee.coop. 
blah 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 then blah blah you know what I'm saying you know what I'm saying man I'm gonna start I'm gonna start uh, working on my songs that seems to be a, that seems to be what needs to happen alright Boomer Lives Boomer Lives